0: Romans chapter 12. We started last week talking about lessons in spirit-filled living. And uh, today I want to talk about dedicated living. Spirit-filled living is a life that is devoted to the Lord, that is committed, first of all, to Him, and secondly, to the family of God, to believers uh, in uh, our local congregation as well as uh, wherever God may put them uh, in front of us. It is a life that considers the world from God's perspective. And the scripture tells us that uh, God doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't see things the way we see them. It does not mean that we cannot learn to see the world the way He does, but it means that in the natural man, the man without the filling of the Holy Spirit, the woman without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we tend to view the world in fallen human terms. And so the Scripture calls us as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and live under His anointing to allow our minds to begin to be changed so that we see the world the way God sees it. Uh, And in doing that, as Rowena again pointed out in the perspectives class, once you begin to see the world the way God does, it changes your perspective. One of the terms thrown around in the last number of years is paradigm. I can remember going decades and never hearing the word paradigm. And then all of a sudden everybody was using paradigm. Well, paradigm is a way of seeing. If you were all wearing glasses this morning that were pink, the world would have a pink hue to it. Everything would look a little pink. But if you are wearing clear glasses, you've had a paradigm shift. You're now seeing the world in a different perspective, with a different hue, a different color. And hopefully, it's the true colors. Unless you happen to be colorblind, that's, that's another problem. My brother tells me that when uh, he's uh, driving around in these uh, small Florida towns where the traffic lights are horizontal... Uh, he has to make sure that uh, the red light is on the left where it 's supposed to be. Some towns uh, turn them into speed traps and flip them around, which is to me a very stupid thing to do because you run a red light, you could cause an accident but anyway he can 't tell the red from the green so um, if it 's not stacked or on the left he 's in trouble but if uh, if you, if you don 't suffer from that and you have a an anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you can see clearly, then you begin to see the world the way God sees it. In Romans chapter 12, there are four basic paragraphs, each of which has a theme. And the first one is very familiar to most people. It's verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers or sisters "...by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." And as we look at this very first paragraph, one of the things that stands out is that we are called to present ourselves to God. That our lives are to be characterized by devotion and commitment to God. Who's first in your life? Who's The number one that permeates all other relationships. When I was in high school, um, I came to a point in time, my dad had died and uh, I was very angry with God and I had spent about a year or more in a very depressed state. It, it, It was a very sad time for me. Uh, Because I not only had lost my dad, but I had sort of lost my faith. And uh, I uh, I was pretty upset. And then there came a time when God really made Himself known to me in such a powerful way that I came back to Him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind and being and I asked him to change me and transform me and to make me into the person that he wanted me to be. Well, I went from a sad, depressed, uh, mopey student to one who was um, excited, thrilled, overjoyed, sold out to God. You couldn't keep me from reading my Bible, couldn't wait to get home and uh, open the Scriptures Uh, Before, I was struggling with my coursework because uh, I didn't have enough energy to do it. Now I was struggling because I didn't have time. I was too busy reading the Bible. And I was going uh, with a particular youth group all around the region, uh, sharing Christ and and giving my testimony and speaking about the Lord. And um, (laughs) interesting as it is, My mom was not too worried when I was depressed. But she got very worried when I became a fanatical Christian. That was distressing to her. And my mother was a believer. She taught Sunday school in the local church. And uh, she taught a group of ladies. And it was like uh, my son's lost his mind. And so um, she asked my band director to talk to me. Uh, She knew I had a special relationship with him. And so he called me into his office one day and and he wanted to give me some sage advice. And he said, Paul, he said, life is like a pie. And he said, it's cut into various slices. And he said, you need to realize that religion is an important component, but it's just one slice of the pie. You've got to keep it in perspective. You've got other slices of the pie that deserve the same amount of your attention uh, because they're just as important as religion. And I was very polite to him, but I walked out of there saying, obviously, he does not know the Lord and obviously he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about because the scripture does not say that. The scripture says that God is to be the pie. That He is to be the entire uh, focus underpinning of our whole life and perspective. And everything else, marriage, children, family, church, work, uh, recreation, whatever else we do is to be guided by our understanding of the nature of God and by His life within us. And if we're embarrassed to have the Holy Spirit along when we're doing something, it's probably something we shouldn't be doing. Because God needs to be a part of everything we do. It doesn't mean you have to hand out four spiritual law tracts and preach the gospel every time you show up anywhere. But it does mean that you should be open and looking for an opportunity. Because God is the focus of our lives. And so Paul says to present your bodies, to present yourselves, your whole being, unto God as a living sacrifice. Now, let me ask you this question. What are most sacrifices? They're dead. (laughs) Most sacrifices are dead. You sacrifice them and they die. But... We are to be living sacrifices. How do you be a living sacrifice? Well, in other places of Scripture, and this harkens back to Romans chapter 6, that we present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and our members, our eyes, ears, mouth, feet, hands, our being, our brain, our members as instruments of righteousness. That word present is the same word as bringing a lamb to the altar of sacrifice and presenting it to the priest. That we are to present our bodies like a sacrifice to God that is alive. And what is one thing that is true of dead animals? Or dead people? Can they choose? Can they act? Can they walk? Can they talk? Can they see? Can they hear? They can't do anything, can they? All right? If a person is dead, they have ceased to have any influence. But a living sacrifice that is wholly devoted to God also cannot speak, see, hear, act on its own but becomes an instrument which God can use to see, hear, touch, speak, feel, experience. We are to be those people that reflect God. In all that we do. So that it is His life that He is living through us. How many times does the Scripture say that in different ways? Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ. He is the one who is living in me. And the life which I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live... In the power of God and for His glory that His life can be demonstrated through me. Almost everywhere you turn in Scripture, in some way or another, Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. We are reminded that as devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we are to live in dependence upon Him and not out of our self-will and strength. And so to present our bodies as living sacrifices is to be those who are alive and invested in the world and in the church, but who reflect the will of God, not our own. And so he says, you present yourself acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I want to say this about this segment when we come to church this morning, what we call the church, when we come to church, if we do not come worshiping, chances are we're not going to experience worship here. This is not the worship service. This is the gathering of the saints to collectively share their experience in Jesus Christ together in singing and praying and studying the Scriptures and and greeting one another and sharing with one another what has happened throughout the week in our lives as we have been serving the Lord. That is our spiritual service of worship. Worship is a life that is devoted to God. And everything we do in every arena that we touch is holy ground. It's sacred. The tongs that they used at the altar to turn the sacrifice did not look or act any different than the ones they used in front of their tent to flip their burgers. If they had burgers, I don't know. But they better not use those tongs to go flip their burgers. Because they were devoted to the Lord. They were sprinkled with the blood. They were dedicated to God. They were set apart and made holy for His use. Friends, we don't have the right to do as we please with our lives. We are to be wholly devoted to God so that He uses us to accomplish His purpose in our life. And so He says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I touched on the renewing of the mind in the introduction. I could say to you unequivocally that reading the Bible is how your mind is renewed. That wouldn't be entirely accurate because the people to whom Paul was writing didn't have a copy of the scriptures. Any copies that they had, any letters that they shared were handwritten or hand copied and not everyone had a copy. But they were an oral society. They were able to listen and learn and memorize very easily. The Jews memorized great quantities of Scripture. And as they talked about them in their homes and around the fires at night, they shared the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord verbally with one another. It is not particularly reading the written word, but it is allowing the mind to be absorbed by the, the will and purpose and character of God. And the easiest way for us to assimilate that into our lives is to read the scriptures. We are fortunate to have copies of the Bible. How many of you here own a Bible? Yeah, Okay. So, if you own a Bible, you have opportunity to read and discover the nature and character of God. And in allowing that to change the way we think, we can prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when I was growing up, I read that passage of Scripture and I thought, well, we have three choices. We can have the good will of God, the acceptable will of God, or the perfect will of God. We can pick the one we want. Actually, we can't. It's one choice described by the characteristics of being good, acceptable, and perfect. You know, I I, I used to to, uh, think about the fact, okay, God has a perfect will, but then He has second best. If you miss the boat here, you can take this one. No, that's not how it works. If you miss the boat here, you have to repent and turn back to God and ask Him to somehow get you back on that boat because you don't get a second one. The perfect will of God is the will that is exactly suited for you and there isn't a second choice. And so our devotion and dedication to Him is paramount many believers think well if i if i don't live a life that's sold out to god i you know i can just be kind of a half-hearted christian but uh, i'll i'll believe the right things and, and i'll say my prayers and one day when i die i'll go to heaven and i will not tell you this morning that you're going to miss heaven and end up in hell if that's the way you live I don't know where you're going to end up. I don't know if you're a true believer. You're not probably acting like one if that's the way you live, so I don't know. I wouldn't presume to say. But I do know this, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there's hay, wood, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stone, and the fire's... Of judgment are applied to our lives. That's not purgatory and it's most certainly not hell. It's the holiness of God looking at a life that has been lived. And the question is, what of your life has eternal significance because you were wholly dedicated to God? And what of your life is consumable because you did it your way? And if you live a half-hearted Christian life, you may find that at the fires of judgment, as Jude puts it, you'll be saved, but like by the skin of your teeth, (laughs) just barely, a brand plucked from the burning, because... You have nothing to show for that life. You have no accumulation of eternal significance. It burns up. And all that's left are the smoldering ashes of your life. But if you live your life wholly dedicated to God, then at the time of judgment before Christ... Gold and silver and precious stone survive the fires, and the glorious purity of his life remains. When our own will is consumed, there's not much of it, and to the extent that we have allowed God to guide us to that extent is His will. Perfected in us. And then Paul goes on to say, and he makes application of this, beginning in verse 3 For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, we're to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of faith and so on, serving or teaching or exhorting or giving or leading or showing mercy. In other words, Paul is saying, first of all, we're to have an attitude about ourselves that is sober and balanced. We're not to think too much of ourselves, and we're not to think too little of ourselves. You know, some people run around tripping over their lower lip all the time. They've got this sad, down-in-the-mouth kind of attitude that they're just not worth very much. You're made in the image of God. You're precious. You're valuable. That's why we go to the extent we go to to save lives. Lives are precious they're incredibly valuable. But on the other hand, you're not any better than anybody else. While you have great worth in the presence and sight of God, you're not better than somebody else sitting next to you. You may be the President of the United States and you may look askew at the guy that's sweeping the floor with the vacuum. But in the sight of God, you're both of equal value. And frankly, if that guy wasn't there sweeping the floor, do you know what the White House would look like after a while? Kind of start to reflect, no, I'm not going to say that. I'll keep my mouth shut. And it wasn't partisan, I promise. Um... We need to have a balanced view of ourselves. And we need to recognize that God has made us to play a role within the body of Christ. We need the church. But the church needs us. It's a two-way street. We live in a time of consumerism within the church and people running run around looking for uh, something that will meet their needs. And that's okay. You have legitimate needs. But you also need to find a place where you can serve. It has to be meet my needs, and give me an opportunity to serve with my gifts. Because it is a two-way street. You need the church, and the church needs you. And God has given you abilities, spiritual gifts, that enable you to contribute to to His family. And we don't all have the same equal um, We have equal value, but we don't have equivalent gifting. Some people are gifted to be leaders. Other people are gifted to be helpers. But if you have a bunch of leaders and no helpers, frankly, you've got to fight. Because everybody who has the gift of leadership wants to do it their way. Back to this attitude. And without helpers, nobody's going to get anything done. In other words, we need to be able to see the significance and worth of each person. Because they're all important. You're important. God has given you a gift. I'm not going to go into detail with that, but God has given you a gift. Spirit-filled believers are to love one another genuinely. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. I don't mean to pick on the South, but I grew up in the South. And while I will say that culturally, Southerners tend to be a little more outgoing and friendly than northerners or midwesterners. And and I'm not being critical, I'm just saying that's just kind of kind of the way it is. I mean, when we were going to college in North Georgia, you couldn't drive down the street without waving at everybody. It was the finger wave. You had to do it. If you didn't do it, you were rude. You know, and everybody in the store, how are you today? How are you doing? What's going on? You know, everybody wants to talk to you about your life. And the minute you walk out, that guy's a real jerk. You know what he's really doing? And and there's... And it was like this in the church. You could have in the church all these wonderful, friendly people until you got them in little groups and they talked about everybody else. That's not genuine love. That's not love without hypocrisy. That's love that is specialized, particular, and focused on what they want. And it's a, it's a sad kind of thing. He says, abhor to what, what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Um, the word brotherly there, brotherly love, is that Philadelphia kind of love that is committed to a friendship and a, an a, and a appreciation and a respect for one another. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. This is what the family of God should look like. And praying for one another and contributing to one another's needs and practicing hospitality is what the family of God should be about. Finally, Paul says in this chapter, living together in the family with empathy, humility, and forgiveness. Bless those who persecute you bless and curse not you know Paul's writing to Christians and I had a dear friend in, in Nashville in Franklin Tennessee her uh, dad was pastor of 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church happened to be um, a church J. Verna McGee eventually pastored uh, while she was there and uh, she was a very gifted Bible teacher and a, and a committed follower of Christ. And um, people loved to hear her teach the Bible. She really, uh, she really knew how to communicate that. She was like Kay Arthur and Beth Moore before we heard about them. And, and Betty was just uh, committed uh, as a Bible teacher. She had been in a couple of churches in her lifetime, and she had an interesting saying. She shared it with me when our church was going through a difficult time. She said, you've never been done in till you've been done in by a Christian. You've never been done in till you've been done in by a Christian. You know what the problem with that is? (laughs) You don't expect it. You expect believers to behave. You expect them to act with integrity. You don't expect to get stabbed in the back by your best Christian buddy. It's just not something you count on. And it takes you by surprise. And it levels you emotionally. Uh, Been there, done that, and I don't want the t-shirt. But Paul is speaking to believers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Having genuine genuine empathy for one another. Are you sad when your brother or sister is hurting? Do you hurt with them? Are you glad when good things happen to them? Even though you've been praying for good things for a long time and you're still waiting and something wonderful has happened. Can you share their joy genuinely and without hypocrisy? Be of the same mind toward one another, not haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation or perspective. Do you think you're the smartest person in the room? (laughs) Does that thought ever cross your mind? (laughs) I'm pretty sharp here and these, these people are really dumb. Um... I mentioned this last week, but when people are having conversations with you, are you spending most of your time while they're talking, thinking about what you're going to say next? Because what you've got to say is really important. Or are you an active listener and empathetic so that you can hear what they're saying that's important? Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If it's possible... I love the way Paul puts this, because he recognizes reality. If it's possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge. You know, friends, you can't be at peace with everyone. You can try, and that's the point. Give it your best shot. But sometimes people just aren't going to play, and there's not much you can do about that. And then he says this peculiar thing at the end, and I'm going to end on this, but it's something that, it, it's a difficult thing to understand. If You get down to the bottom. Verse 20, it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Some people have read that and say, Aha! I know how to get even. I'm going to kill them with kindness. I'm going to be good to them. And and I'm going to dump hot coals on their head because I'm going to be so nice. Well, look at the context, folks. Whatever it is saying, it is not telling you this is the best way to get even. Because it's already said, Leave the vengeance to god vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord there have been a couple of thoughts that have been offered as to what this means one of them is that your neighbor's fire might go out and you go and you take a pan and you want fresh coals from their altar and it They put it in the pan and most people in the Middle East, you know, would have some sort of buffer and they'd carry it on their head. And heat goes up, not down, so they could take it home and put it in and get their fire going again. In other words, it was a blessing, not a curse. I don't know if that's, okay, maybe they did that, maybe not. Maybe that's what Paul has in mind, maybe not, I don't know. Some people have said it's their conscience. This is this is the conscience. If, if you love them and care for them and you're genuine, their conscience will get to them like burning coals on their head. And that ought to happen, quite frankly. Uh, the way you treat people, if they're being nasty, it, it ought to give them a sense of guilt. It really should. But not because you're trying to guilt them and, and get even. But because they've done wrong. And they need to be corrected by the Lord. But I can guarantee you that it does not mean here's the way I can get even. I'll be nice to them and God will dump coals on them. That's not the idea here. The idea is that in some way or another, your kindness will be a blessing and God will take care of the offense well I'm close (laughs) not exact but I'm close Um, let God speak to your heart through this chapter go home and read it Uh, I followed the scripture not the outline but the outline follows the scripture so go home and look at them together and let the Lord speak to your heart Uh, Ron, if you'll come, please, brother.